Well, why do we find stories of children being adopted so moving? Or why is it that people find love stories so compelling? Why are, why are so many romances made, romance movies or romance novels written? Well, one of the reasons is because we all want to belong somewhere. We all want someone to, to love us, whether that's a, a parent or whether that is someone else, and not just in a general way, but in a very specific way. You know, what happens in a romance story, maybe when a, a man proposes to a, a woman, uh, he's not just saying to that woman that he loves her like he loves all the other women in the world. If he proposes in a crowded restaurant, he is not declaring his love for everyone in that restaurant. No, he is saying to that woman that I love you particularly. I am making a distinction between you and, and all the other women in the world. Well, it's the same thing that happens or a similar thing that happens in adoption. A child who may feel unloved or a child who may feel like they don't belong anywhere is told that there is someone who loves you and, and wants to adopt you. Those adoptive parents are making a distinction between that child and, and all the other children in the world. They are telling that child that they love him or her in a special way, a, a distinctive way. It's no surprise then that the scripture speaks of the relationship between Jesus and the church, his people, as the relationship between a husband and a wife. And God designed it that way. God designed marriage to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. And it is no surprise that the New Testament uses the language of adoption to describe what happens when God saves us. 1 John 3.1 See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. In his book, Knowing God, uh, the well-known book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes this. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as a father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. In other words, it is, it is even better to be loved by God as Father than to be simply saved from his wrath. He goes on to write, The new birth, or salvation, is a transition, not simply out of condemnation into acceptance, but out of bondage and destitution into the safety, certainty, and enjoyment of the family of God. Now, brothers and sisters, the story of the Exodus is a story of adoption. It is God calling his people Israel out of their bondage to Pharaoh and calling them into his service instead. It is calling them out of their bondage and destitution into the safety, certainty, and enjoyment of the family of God. It is God choosing to set his particular love on the people of Israel, not because that they were such a lovely people, but because he wanted to. You can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 8, starting in verse 20. And we're going to be studying through Exodus 9, verse 12 this morning. And in our text for today, we will see God making a distinction between the people of Israel, his people, and the people of Egypt, Pharaoh's people. He communicates through the plagues, the plagues that do not affect the people of Israel, 
that Israel is his people. He loves them particularly. He is in the process of adopting them. And so as I read through these verses, we're going to read through these verses this morning, I want you to listen to all the times that God calls Israel my people. And all the times that he tells Pharaoh and the people of Egypt that the people of Egypt are your people, Pharaoh. So listen for all the times that God calls Israel my people and calls the people of Egypt Pharaoh's people. And listen for all the ways that God makes a distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. So please follow along as I start reading in Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. The Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh when you see him going out to the water. Tell him this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you will not let my people go, then I will send swarms of flies against you, your officials, your people, and your houses. The Egyptians' houses will swarm with flies, and so will the land where they live. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will take place tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Thick swarms of flies went into Pharaoh's palace and his officials' houses. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the country. But Moses said, It would not be right to do that because what we will sacrifice to the Lord, our God, is detestable to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what the Egyptians detest in front of them, won't they stone us? We must go a distance of three days into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord, our God, as he instructs us. Pharaoh responded, I will let you go and sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in the wilderness. But don't go very far. Make an appeal for me. As soon as I leave you, Moses said, I will appeal to the Lord. And tomorrow the swarms of flies will depart from Pharaoh, his officials, and his people. But Pharaoh must not act deceptively again by refusing to let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh's presence and appealed to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses had said. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, his officials, and his people. Not one was left. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go and keep holding them, then the Lord's hand will bring a severe plague against your livestock in the field, the horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that the Israelites own will die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. The Lord did this thing, did this the next day. All the Egyptian livestock died, but none among the Israelite livestock died. Pharaoh sent messengers who saw that not a single one of the Israelite livestock was dead. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of furnace soot, and Moses is to throw it toward heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the entire land of Egypt. It will become festering boils on people and animals throughout the land of Egypt. So they took furnace soot and stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it toward heaven, and it became festering boils on people and animals. 
The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had told Moses. Well, clearly it is almost impossible to read those verses and not realize that God was making a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. And God wanted Pharaoh, he wanted all of Egypt, and he wanted the nation of Israel to know it. The the first three plagues that we studied last week were all about God's supremacy and his power over the gods of Egypt. Of course, God's power and his his might are still on display in these plagues that we are going to look at this week. But a, a new theme takes center stage in these three plagues, and that's God's particular and distinctive love for his people. And so I I simply want to ask two questions about what we have just observed in the text that we just read. Two questions about that. And they're going to serve as the outline for the sermon this morning. The first question is, what does it mean that God makes a distinction? What does it mean that God makes a distinction? And second, what is God's purpose in making a distinction? What is God's purpose in making a distinction? Uh, The main idea for the sermon this morning is that distinctiveness, or to be distinct, is both the reality and the calling of the Christian life. In other words, God sets apart his people as distinct, and he calls them to live in a way that is distinct. God sets apart his people as distinct, and he calls them to live in a way that is distinct. So that first question that we're going to examine this morning, what does it mean that God makes a distinction? Well, at its simplest level, what it means that God makes a distinction is that he chooses to set his particular love, you might say his redeeming love or his saving love on certain people. Well, it is this fact that makes his people distinct. It is God's redeeming or particular love that distinguishes or separates God's people from all other people and brings them into his family. It separated Israel from Egypt, and it separates Christians today, the the church, from all other people in the world. Throughout the Bible, we see, as one writer puts it, God's intention to set apart a unique people, uniquely his and uniquely loved. It is God's intention to set apart a unique people, uniquely his and uniquely loved. So God saved Noah and his family from the flood. God called one man, Abraham, out of the nations and promised to bless him and his descendants after him. God set his unique love on Jacob, but not his brother Esau. He rescued the nation of Israel and made them his treasured possession, but he hardened Pharaoh's heart and sent plagues among the people of Egypt. As we go forward to the the New Covenant, the New Testament, the church, God's people today, we read in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy or set apart and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Friends, if you are a a Christian, God has set his unique love on you. 
Like an adoptive parent chooses to set their unique love on a particular child to bring them into their family, to love them in a special way. So God has done for you. He has set you apart. He has saved you. He has adopted you into his family. He loves you. He did not save you and and set his particular love on you because of your goodness or your greatness. He did not do it because there was something particularly lovely uh, about you. Now listen to these verses from Deuteronomy about why God chose Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read this. For you, Israel, are a holy or set-apart people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God choose Israel? It's because he loved them. We don't really get a better or maybe you would say a more specific answer than that. God chose Israel because he loved them. Brothers and sisters, why did God lead you to repentance and faith? Why did he choose you? Why did he save you? Why did he adopt you into his family? The answer is because he loved you. Just stop and think about that for a minute. That's an amazing statement. God saved you because he loved you. And praise be to God. Now, even as, I, even as I say that, I do want to affirm the truth that God loves everyone in the entire world. We, we see that in the Bible. But God does not love everyone in the same way. I might be able to say truly that I love children. I love all children. I, you know, I enjoy being around children. But I do not love all children in the same way I love my children. Children who are here that are not my children don't have any hard feelings about that. But it's true. The same is true with God. And God loves everyone and all people experience some of his goodness. Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. As we've already thought about this morning, God himself is love. As Matt McCullough puts it in his short little booklet, Does God Love Everyone? We actually have that out in the library today if you want to check it out. He writes this. According to Genesis 1, in God's eyes, every human made in his image is very good. Not an accident, not a mistake, not a disease on our planet, but an object of unique delight. This is an affirmation of love. Friends, the the great problem of the Bible is not that God does not love people. It is that people do not love God. Romans 3.11, there is no one who seeks God. There is no one who seeks God. Your sin, friends, is rebellion against God. Your sin is a statement that you do not love God. It is a declaration that you do not want to be one of his people. That's why the Bible says that our sin has separated us from God. That your sin has separated you from God. But the good news of the gospel is that love consists in this. Not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4.10. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is that if you are a Christian, God loved us when we did not love him. Out of the abundance of his love, he sent his son Jesus Christ on earth to forgive, to rescue, and to redeem those who did not love him. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God's particular love, his adopting love, his redeeming love, his saving love is set on all those who repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. God's saving, redeeming love is set on all those who repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what it means that that God makes a, a distinction. And we see God making a distinction throughout these verses in in Exodus. He says explicitly, I am making a distinction. We saw how many times he called the people of Israel my people. And that he called the people of Egypt Pharaoh's people. He said to Pharaoh that they are your people. God was making a distinction. But the the second question I want to ask and where I want to spend the majority of our time this morning is what is God's purpose in making a distinction? What is God's purpose in making a distinction? Why is it God's intention to set apart a unique people, uniquely his and uniquely loved? Why in our text does God make a distinction between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel? I think we see a couple of answers to that question. One It's for God's praise and glory. It's to make his name known. It's for God's praise and glory. That theme that we have seen over and over and over again throughout the Exodus. But second, it is for the good of all people. Not just his people, it's for the good of of all people. In some ways, we might even say it's an act of love to all people. We're going to see both of those things, I think, as we walk through this text. Look again at Exodus chapter 8, verse 22. God explicitly says that one of the reasons that he has made a distinction between the nation of Israel and the Egyptians with the plagues is because this way you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. In other words, the distinction that God made between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel was proof positive that God was the one inflicting these plagues on the land. These plagues were not some sort of natural phenomenon. They were not the works of the Egyptian gods as if the the Egyptians had displeased their own gods in some ways. No, God was making it clear, this is from my hand. These plagues are from the hand of the Lord. I don't know if you all have ever seen one of these. Every so often I will run across an internet article or perhaps even a TV special that tries to give some sort of natural explanation for the plagues that came to Egypt. It tries to examine the plagues from a a natural or a scientific standpoint. They try to explain how these plagues could have just been a natural occurrence, like perhaps a solar eclipse or a, a typhoon, something unusual. And the purpose of these articles and TV shows is to say that even if these plagues really happened, And the people who write these things and produce these things are always skeptical of that. But the purpose is to say that even if the plagues really happened, they were not the work of any god. There must just be a scientific explanation. 
All this assigning it to God is just because the people of that time didn't really understand science. They didn't really have a full understanding of what is going on. Well, friends, the the distinction that God makes between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel leaves no room for that type of explanation. How do you explain flies everywhere except where the Israelites live? You guys have seen flies. They don't make a distinction. God was showing that he was the God of both Israel and Egypt. God was showing that he was in control of Egypt, not Pharaoh. God was making himself known by making a distinction. Notice when God inflicted boils on the people of Egypt, that, that, that last plague that we just examined. Even the magicians could not stand before Moses. Remember from last week, the magicians were something like the representatives or the priests of, of all the various false gods of Egypt. When we saw them last week, they were able to make their, their staffs turn into serpents. They were able to turn water into blood. They were able to produce uh, frogs. Well, we, we saw that they could not produce gnats last week and that they could not reverse the plagues that God sent. Like, what did Egypt need? They didn't need more water into blood. They didn't need more frogs. They needed these magicians to take them away. But now we come this week, and they can't even stop, stop these boils from, being, from afflicting themselves. They can't stop God's power at work on their own bodies. God was asserting his power and authority over these magicians, over the people of Egypt, and over all the false gods of Egypt. And notice what else is in the text. God commanded Pharaoh to let his people go so that they may worship me. He says this twice in Exodus 8.20 and Exodus 9.1. Pharaoh is to let his people go so that they may worship me. We saw this last week as, as well. God has said this a number of times. Well, God was making a distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. But that was not like the end in and of itself. God was calling the people of Israel out of their slavery to Pharaoh. He was calling them into his service. We've seen that a few different times. Pharaoh was trying to tighten his grip on the people of Israel. God was freeing them. But he wasn't just freeing them. He was calling them into his service. He was forming them into a people for his own possession. Because he loved them, yes. But ultimately, he was doing it for his own glory. He was doing it that the people of Israel might worship him. Friends, if if you are a Christian, this is why God has saved you as well. He did it because he loved you, yes. But he did it for his own glory and praise. You can uh, open your bulletin or go back to those verses that Ada Baby just read from us from 1 Peter chapter 2 for a moment. We're going to look at 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Well, listen to these words that the Apostle Peter writes about the church, God's new covenant people. He writes this, starting in verse 9. But you, and that is a plural you. He's writing to the church. It is you all. If you're where I'm from in the United States, it's y'all. But you all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, or a set-apart nation, a people for his possession, so that you all may proclaim the praises of the one who called you all out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you all are God's people. You would not receive mercy, but now you all have received mercy. 
I mean, what an amazing couple of verses those are. Oh, you, we, you're a Christian. We were once not a people. You did not have a family. You were orphaned. You were separated from the love of God. But now you are God's people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And for what purpose has God chosen you and made you a people for his own possession? This is what Peter writes. So that you may proclaim the praises or excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For what purpose has God chosen you and made you a people for his own possession and made the church a people for his own possession? So that the church may proclaim the praises or excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now keep your finger there in in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to come back in just a moment. But first I just want to simply ask the question, how do God's people proclaim the praises of the one who has called them? How do they, in their distinctiveness, give praise and glory to God? How do they show that they are God's people? How do they show that they are distinct and set apart? Brothers and sisters, it's by the way they live. God's people... You, the church, are to be a holy people. In the Old Testament, God's people had a a national identity for the most part, right? It was the, the people of Israel. So they were distinguished ethnically from the people around them. They were distinguished nationally. They had their own government. They eventually had their own king. So they were distinguished ethnically. They were distinguished nationally from other people. But that is not the only way in which the people of Israel were distinguished. We will, Lord willing, get there eventually in our study through Exodus. But what did God do after delivering the people out of Egypt? Well, he gave them a law. He took them to Mount Sinai and he gave them a a law. It was right after their deliverance through the Red Sea that the Ten Commandments come. But why did God give the people of Israel a law? There's a a few different reasons why God gives them a law, but, but one important reason was to set them apart. It was to distinguish them from the nations around them. It was so that his people would reflect his holiness. It was so his people would reflect God's distinctiveness. So even in our text, we see that the sacrifices that the people of Israel were going to make to the Lord would be detestable to the Egyptians, right? Even in their sacrifices, their worship, they were going to be distinct from the people of Egypt. Well, why was Israel not allowed to eat certain animals? Why is this part of God's law? Why all the laws about what is clean and unclean? It was to teach Israel that God is holy. God is set apart. But it was also so that as the the people of Israel obeyed his law, as they lived lives that were separate and distinct from all the nations that were around them, they lived lives that were distinct from the people of Egypt, Well, those people might turn and trust Israel's God. They would see that Israel was different. They would see that Israel was distinct, and that would point them to Israel's God. Brothers and sisters, the the same thing is true of you if you are a Christian. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the, the verses just after the ones we read. This is what Peter writes to the church. Dear friends... 
I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably or live holy among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Friends, how are you to proclaim that praises of the one who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? It is by living a holy life. Now, it's certainly not the only way we proclaim God's praises, right? We also use our, our words. Living a holy life is not sufficient for evangelism. We must use our words if we are going to be obedient to the Great Commission and go and make disciples of all nations. But I want you to see this morning that Christians are to show they are distinct people by the way they live. And notice what Peter says is one of the results or purposes of holiness. Verse 12. It is so that those who do not know God will come to glorify God on the day he visits. And that might be a reference to when Jesus returns, the day of judgment. But it's likely a reference to their own day of salvation, when God visits them. It may lead them to place their faith in Jesus Christ. We actually see this happen in the Exodus. We actually see this happen in the Exodus. In the seventh plague, the one we're going to look at next week, the first one we're going to look at next week, what's the result of all this distinction that God has been making between his people and the people of Egypt? Well, God's going to send a great hailstorm on Egypt, and he warns the Egyptians to bring their livestock into shelter so that they will not be killed by the hail. In Exodus 9.20, this is what we read. Those among Pharaoh's officials who feared the word of the Lord made their servants and livestock flee to shelters. They realized that God was going to do what he said. He was making a distinction, and they better obey. Those among Pharaoh's officials who feared the word of the Lord made their servants and livestock flee to shelters. These people saw the distinction that God had made between his people and the people of Egypt, and they at least listened to the word of the Lord here. But then when we get to Exodus chapter 12, 38, we learn that when Israel finally left Egypt, when Pharaoh kicked them out after the death of the firstborn, that a mixed multitude went with the people of Israel. A mixed multitude. In other words, it included some Egyptians. It wasn't just the people of Israel who fled Egypt. There were some Egyptians who trusted in the Lord and went up with the people of Israel. They said, you know what, we see this distinction that God has made making between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. We're going this way. We want, to, we want to align ourselves with the people of Israel and Israel's God. Friends, the, the distinction God made between his people and the people of Israel, Egypt was not just to display his holiness and power and glory, though it certainly was to do those things. It was not just for the good of the Israelites. Though it was for the good of the Israelites. But it was also for the good of the Egyptians. It was so some of those Egyptians might be led to repentance, which is exactly what seems to have happened. Remember that the plagues were were warnings to the people of Egypt. God gave Pharaoh and the people of Egypt warnings and opportunities to repent of their sins, to soften their hearts, to turn towards the Lord, to listen to him. Some in Egypt listened. They sent their livestock to the shelters. They left with the people of Israel. But Pharaoh refused, so the plagues continued. 
Brothers and sisters, just as the distinction that God made between Israel and Egypt was intended displaying his glory and holiness, and just as it was intended to lead the people of Egypt to repentance, well, so your life is to be a light for those who do not know the Lord. Your holiness matters. Your holiness is for God's glory. You are to live a holy life that you may give praise and glory to the one who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But it's also for the good of your unbelieving family members, your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving neighbors, for the watching world. So brothers and sisters, let me simply ask you this morning, does your life proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Are you living a holy life? Will others see by the way you live that you have been set apart from God? That you live in a way that is distinct, indifferent, and set apart? Will others, when they look at your life, see something of the holiness of God and something of the love of God? Does your life reflect the fact that you are one of God's people? But friends, it's not just individuals that are to reflect this reality. It's not just individuals that are to live a holy life. It is churches too. Remember that you in 1 Peter is plural. Peter is writing to the church. Churches themselves are to be communities that are distinct. Churches are to reflect the reality that they are gatherings of God's people. Well, how do we see this reflected in the church? We see it reflected in a number of ways. We see it reflected in baptism. In baptism, what is happening? Well, an individual is is publicly proclaiming their faith in Jesus Christ. But they're also publicly proclaiming that I want to become one of God's people. I am becoming one of God's people. In baptism itself, the, the church, the church is making a public statement that we believe this person has been truly converted, that they have truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But they've also been brought into God's family, and so we want to bring them into our fellowship. They are now part of the people of God. They have been separated. They are distinct. Therefore, we are bringing them into our fellowship. It makes a distinction. Each time the church celebrates the Lord's Supper, it is reflecting and proclaiming the reality that the church is a distinct people set apart to God. This is why only Christians who have been baptized are to take the Lord's Supper. This is why it should ordinarily be observed in the church. The Lord's Supper is a visible display of who the people of God are. It's a visible display of their unity together. One of its purposes, one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is to make a visible distinction. Brothers and sisters, churches also reflect the reality that God's people are distinct when they practice intentional church membership. In other words, when they are careful to to only admit to membership people who have truly been converted. Friends, a a church's members are not simply anyone who decides to to show up to church on a a given Sunday, even though it does not even include all those who decide to, to regularly attend the church. The requirement for becoming a member of the church is to be a Christian and to have other members of the church to agree that, yes, we believe that you have been been saved. You are publicly identifying as a Christian, and we think that by your life you have been set apart. 
Friends, if you have been coming to Emmanuel for a while, know that as much as we rejoice in your presence and as, and as much as we enjoy having you with us each and every week, and we, we truly do, we rejoice in that fact. Now, simply coming regularly does not make you a member of the church. So, so let me encourage you, if you believe yourself to, to be a Christian and you have been visiting for a while but never joined, let me encourage you to pursue membership. Come to the next Knowing Emmanuel class. God calls all Christians to show that they have been set apart as God's people. And one of the primary ways, one of the primary ways Christians are to do this is by joining a local church. Friends, God's people are are no longer a physical nation. The visible representation, the visible representation of God's people is the local church. The Christian life is a community project. We show in our corporate lives together that we have been set apart to God. Churches reflect the fact that they are God's people and they have been set aside as distinct in their corporate life together. John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Churches reflect God's holiness in their corporate worship and in their corporate holiness. They reflect it in their, in their love for one another. They reflect it in their, their care for one another. Friends, we take membership seriously here in Emmanuel because we take seriously the fact that the church is to reflect the fact that God's people are distinct. This is also why we practice church discipline at Emmanuel. If the the member of a church is to live in open and unrepentant sin, so their, their life looks much more like the world than it looks like the people of God. The Bible calls churches to remove those individuals from membership, to call them to repentance, but if that does not happen, to eventually remove them from membership. Because failing to do so would communicate that God's people are no different from the people of the world. It would communicate that God does not really care about holiness, that perhaps God himself is not set apart in holiness, set apart in holy. Friends, the distinctiveness of the church matters. Friends, if you are here and and you are are not a Christian, if you are here and and you are not a Christian, let me speak to you for a moment. Because with all this talk about God's particular love, with all this talk about the, the distinction that God makes between his people and other people, with all this talk about the distinctiveness of the church, you might be feeling a bit left out. You might be feeling a little bit like, like you do not belong. And so first, I, I want to just affirm what I said just a moment ago, that we are truly glad to have you with us this morning. We're truly glad to have you with us each and every morning. I, I mean that. I rejoice in the fact uh, that you have come this morning. I rejoice in the fact that, you, that, that some of you may have been coming each and every morning for quite some time. But at the same time, if, if you felt a little bit left out this morning or like you do not fully belong, well, good. I'm glad for that fact. Because the fact that God makes a distinction between his people and other people is supposed to make it clear that there are some who belong and some who do not. The fact that God makes a distinction between his people and other people is supposed to make it clear that there are some who belong and some who do not. If you're not a Christian, it is intended to make you feel like you do not fully belong. But the goal of that is not to exclude you. The goal of that is not to to keep you at arm's length. No, the intent is to give you a desire to belong. 
to lead you to ask, how do I become part of this people? How do I become one of God's people? How am I adopted into his family? Well, friends, the, the answer to that question is by repentance and faith. How do you become part of God's family? How do you belong? Well, it's through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. God's special redeeming love is reserved for those who repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And just like some Egyptians joined the people of Israel, there is a place among the people of God for all who turn from their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. There is a place in the people of God for all who repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, the the distinction between God's people and the people of the world, the distinctiveness of God's people now, is simply an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. It's an earthly picture of an eternal reality. And that eternal reality is that when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, he will make a final distinction between his people and the people who are not his people. Listen to these words from Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another. Just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Friends, when when Jesus returns in judgment, he will make an eternal distinction between those who are his people and those who are not his people. But friends, God has been gracious to you. He has given you an opportunity to join his people, to, to be adopted, to go up with the people of Israel. You may not belong now, but you can. But you must repent and believe. Like a, like a handful of Egyptians uh, abandon their country and their people to join the Israelites, you must abandon your old allegiances and follow Jesus. So my plea to you today, my prayer for you today, is that you would do that. And if you have any questions about that, I'd be more than happy to talk to you after the service or, or any time. And for those of you who are Christians, well, rejoice in the fact that the king will one day say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Give God praise that he has adopted you. Be glad you are part of the family of God. But also be reminded that distinctiveness is not just the reality of the Christian life. It is the reality of the Christian life, but it is not just the reality of the Christian life. It is the calling of the Christian life. You are called to live a life of holiness and to love and invest in the people of God in your local church. You're called to invest in your neighbors and to, to love others. Well, this is the praise of God's glory. It's for the good of the watching world. Let's pray.